scripture as far as the books of the Bible. And this week we're actually up to Micah. And I think it's probably safe to say there's probably four of you that have read the book of Micah um, here today. Uh, by the way, I'm, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor uh, for The Garden. And today we're going to say, talk about stop your crying. I look at why brokenness and humility should result in joy and not sorrow. Let me say that again. I look at why humility and brokenness should result in joy and not sorrow, not guilt, not depression, not discouragement, not paralyzing fear. And so let's look at that today. But before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of background on the book of Micah. Um, many believers probably haven't taken time to read many of the what we call minor prophets. Um, and they're not minor because they're not important. They're minor because the books they wrote are smaller than the, than the big guys like Isaiah and those guys, right? But they're very important uh, prophecies. And as a matter of fact, when you miss out, when you don't read the minor prophets, you miss out on some of the most encouraging things about why we can trust God's word. So just as a background on Micah, it was written roughly 800 years before Christ. <clears throat> so it was written right in the middle of this kind of like um, silent intertestament period where there wasn't much going on. Micah was right at the end of this time where the prophets were speaking. And, you know, as we go a little bit further along, there becomes about a 400-year period after that where there's kind of silence from God, it seems like. But this is near the end of the prophetic era, uh, you know, by a few hundred years. It was one of the minor prophets. Again, it doesn't mean it wasn't important, but just the, the amount of material written by Micah was less than some of the other what we call major prophets. But today's prophecy about Micah actually improves, or I'm sorry, proves the inspiration of Scripture. Now let me park here for just a moment. And this is kind of like a bonus sermon, mini sermonette within the sermon. One of the things that we believe here in the garden without question is that the Word of God is inspired, the Word of God is authoritative, the Word of God is infallible, it is not traditions. There is one interpretation, many applications of the Word of God. That is what we believe. We believe that because the Scripture says so. And we also believe that without believing that the Word of God is reliable, without believing that the Word of God is without error, if we don't believe that, then we really don't have anything. The Word of God is the foundation for what we believe. It's the foundation for what we teach. And any time we look at God's Word, we consider God's Word superior to any opinion. We consider God's Word superior to any denomination. We consider God's Word superior to any man. We consider God's word superior to any pastor. We consider God's word to be superior to anything on earth. Just to make sure that you understand what we feel about God's word. Have I made that clear? Very good. Today's prophecy is one of the most effective proofs of the inspiration of scripture since it makes a very clear, precise prophecy about a very obscure place. The other thing that the prophecy we're going to look at today in Micah does is it also makes very clear that Jesus is God. Another thing that we believe here is we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And one of the things we believe about, at, about that is that Jesus was God in the form of man, came to die, and shed his blood so that we might live. That's what we believe. And Micah makes it very clear in this prophecy, not only about Jesus being born in a very obscure place, but also that Jesus 
is the Ancient of Days. In other words, he is God. As a matter of fact, John 1, 1 confirms that. In beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a lot of people talk about the Word of God, oh, the living Word, and they think the living Word means it can have many different ways you can look at it. No, the living Word, whenever somebody refers to the Bible as the living Word, you know they're wrong. The living Word was Jesus. Jesus was the living Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So with that in mind, there's a passage in Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 6. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, and this was Herod asking where Jesus was, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rules of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. This is in Matthew. And this is what's so fascinating about this passage. Before we get that, I'm going to go through some odds for you. Here's some odds. You will eventually die. There's a one-in-one one odd of that. Fair enough? Number two, struck by lightning in a particular year, there's a one in 700,000 odds. Killed by lightning in a year, you can get struck, and there's still a good chance you'll survive. Killed, one in two million. Becoming president, one in 10 million. I know what some of you are thinking, but we'll go on. <laughs> A meteorite landing on your house, one in 180, what is that, a billion? Oh, aren't you so smart, all of you? It's one in 180 bunches, okay? Another odd, one man who fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies about him, one in, how smart are you now? Huh? That is a 10 octillion one in ten octillion odds that one man would fulfill all the old testament prophecies prophecies about who and what and where and what particular moment in history to whom one man would be born and what he would do one in ten octillion and that passage we looked at in Matthew, what prophet were they referring to about him being born in Bethlehem? It was Micah. Look at what it says in Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, you are too, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, it was the smallest of towns. It was part of the tribe of Judah, which was also, by the way, a prophecy of where Jesus would come from. You are the smallest part of Judah, but from you shall come forth for, uh, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. He was here before he was born, but he will be born to you, this small, insignificant town, which is as part of the tribe of Judah. That was a prophecy that took place, the odds of which are very slim, and Matthew declares that this was the prophecy of Micah, and it was fulfilled. So what I want you to make sure that you understand is that we can have Good confidence that God's word is inspired by things like this. This is one example. It would be like me predicting right now who would be born 800 years from now in which room in Sarasota Memorial at what time of day to what family. That would be like me predicting that. Just so you get an understanding. Guys, the word of God is real. The word of God can be trusted. And we probably ought not twist it very much because it means what it says. So, 
Let's talk about what we're going to discuss today. Let me read this passage to you. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for all my sin, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, there is a very important biblical principle in Micah that is echoed throughout all other places and many places of Scripture. And it's a principle that we as Christians very easily confuse and misunderstand and misapply in our lives. It's this idea of humility and brokenness versus depression and guilt. The first passage we read was about Bethlehem, a very small town, smallest of the clans of Judah. It's a great picture of humility. It's a great picture of smallness. In the midst of insignificance, Bethlehem is given by God's sovereign grace this blessing of being the birthplace of the king of kings. Bethlehem did not earn this honor. Bethlehem did not vie for this. It wasn't like they were trying to get the Olympics. They didn't have like a search a committee to come along and say, if you have Jesus born here, we'll put up this brand new stadium. People will come from all over the place. The wise men will be great. It'll be awesome. It wasn't anything like that. God chose Bethlehem, perhaps because it was so small. Didn't earn the honor. It didn't have a great group of people with powerful influence with God. It was the smallest clan from the tribe of Judah that became the most elevated in our culture when we think about Christmas because it produced the Messiah. So what is it that we're supposed to understand about broken and humility, brokenness and humility? I got a couple passages I'm going to read for you. And by the way, it took me days to try to filter out just three or four. There's tens and I mean, I could have 40 up there, but I think I picked out some good ones. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So you see in this passage a concept of humility and brokenness, being humble, and how does it end? In depression? No, it ends in what? Exaltation, with anxieties and fears cast away. Do you see that? Let's look at another one. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, I will not give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. Let me translate that. You don't care about perfect Sunday school attendance. You don't care about how much you give in the offering. You don't care about how good I look at church, how many friends I bring. You don't care about that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and humble heart or contrite heart, oh God, you will not hate. And in Hebrew, when you see something like that, you will not hate, it's kind of a poetic, and this was a psalm written by David, it's a poetic thing, and what it really means is the opposite. Not only will you not hate it, you will absolutely love it. So that's something, a little bit of a Hebrew lesson for you. The way Hebrew is written, when you see that type of thing, you will not despise. That means not only will you not despise, you're going to do the opposite of despise. You're going to love it. And then there's another passage that we can look at. In James 4, 6, we spent six months studying the book of James. Look at this. 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud. He hates the proud, but gives grace, undeserved favor to the humble. What is a life supposed to look like that receives undeserved favor from the king of kings? Is it supposed to be someone who lives in a darkness because of their sin? Listen, there are many other verses that communicate that God blesses brokenness and humility. And what it says all throughout them is this. God loves brokenness. God loves humility. And so if there's a lot of passages that teach us that, don't you think we should be really familiar, intricately familiar with what it is? What it looks like? How we get it? And do you really think that if this is the one thing he wants from us the most, that he would want this humility and brokenness to result in sulking or depression? Is that really what he wants from his children? To live like depressed, field-tilling monks that can't talk to anybody because they're so sinful? See, brokenness and humility and dependence, which, by the way, should be a result of biblical brokenness, a result of biblical humility, is dependence. All those are part of faith, which is what? It's a Say it. It's what? Gift. Thank you. Faith is a gift. Brokenness, humility, and dependence are all part of the gift of faith, and enlightenment. Perpetual sulking and guilt are actually at odds with the results of true humility and brokenness. So what I'm trying to make sure that you understand is there is a difference between being aware of your depravity, being aware of the depths of just how sinful you are, and then feeling guilty about your depravity and the depths of your sinfulness. There's a difference. Because see, focusing on your own depravity to such a degree that it drives you to a dark, guilty, sulking place is one of the biggest mistakes Christians make. Because see, depression and guilt is inward focus. Dependence is Godward focus. Do you see the difference? And so, look, plenty of people feel guilty about sin. Even people who don't have a relationship with Heavenly Dad can feel guilty about sin. The magical transformation are those that see their sin and are broken by it, but then have their sin wiped away. The guilt is cast away through the work of the blood of Christ, and somehow through this gift of faith, we go from feeling bad about our sin to feeling victorious because our focus is on what God has done, not what we have done, what we continue to do, and what we are doing and will do. But our focus becomes Godward. Because, see, let me just share this. If your humility doesn't produce joy, it's not humility. Let me say it again. If your humility doesn't produce joy, it's not humility. Frankly, what it is, is guilt 
without forgiveness. Guilt without forgiveness. And I think there's a lot of Christians who, while they've been forgiven, they're not living like they've been forgiven. And we embrace this twisted, corrupted perspective of humility that leaves us paralyzed and useless. Depression and guilt lead to condemnation and defeat, but humility leads to dependence and trust. As a matter of fact, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You hear that? There is no condemnation to those who are depraved and sinful and broken who are in Christ Jesus. See, God has not called us to depression and guilt about our depravity. He has called us to live with the reality of it for sure. Don't deceive yourself into thinking, well, I'm a Christian now, so I'm not sinful. Wrong. He's called us to live in the reality of our depravity, but then he's also called us to what? Trust his cure for it. As a matter of fact, the passage we'll look at later, he turns our mourning into dancing. What do you think that means? Doesn't mean you're supposed to be break dancing with tears falling down your face. That's not what he's talking about. But see, when he turns your mourning into dancing, <coughs> this leads to celebration, freedom, joy, and peace. Got some more passages for you. Another one in James. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do you hear that? If you have what you think is humility, and you're not experiencing the blessing of God exalting you, then what you have is not humility. It's guilt, and there's no forgiveness in guilt. Listen to this one. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. That's dependence. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. A sackcloth, what was that? That was something that somebody would put on ceremoniously to go in and grieve over their sin. David did that, as a matter of fact, when the prophet came and said, David, you murdered Uriah. You committed adultery with Bathsheba, and God is not pleased. The scripture says that David donned the sackcloth, and he threw ashes on himself, and it was a ceremonial way to appear broken. And what does the psalmist say here? You've turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosened my sackcloth. You have clothed me with gladness. He takes off this sackcloth, this 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 bag you put over yourself to mourn and he's clothed me with gladness you see the picture you took off the mourning jacket and you put on the gladness jacket that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent does that sound like a sulking depressed sinner to you oh lord my god i will give thanks to you forever guys guilt and depression don't result in praise you see that? But brokenness 
and humility mixed with mercy and grace and forgiveness result in praise. <coughs> if you seem to have a hard time of understanding what it means to be praiseworthy, to understand what it means to praise God, it could possibly be that you don't understand humility, that you are wandering around in the desert of guilt. See, our God-inspired humility and brokenness leads us to dependence, which leads to mercy, which leads to joy. Humility and brokenness lead to confidence. It leads to courage. <coughs> I love this concept in Hebrews. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Guys, let me ask you a question. What does the author of Hebrews mean with confidence? And what does he mean by throne of grace? What's he talking about? I mean, this is pretty clear. Remember, we trust God's word, right? The author of Hebrews, some say it's Paul, some say it's some other, someone else. Let us then with confidence. The word confidence almost means brazen arrogance. Let us come forward with brazen confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So in this beautifully written verse, this incredibly written passage, you see three concepts. <coughs> you see confidence, dependence, and grace and mercy. Do you see that? Confidence, dependence, and grace and mercy. See, this is what I hope that you take away from this today. And, and Micah makes a great example of this when he talks about it in the prophecy of Bethlehem. And then later on, he talks about the fact that God does not desire your religiosity. He desires your humility. But your humility is not, woe is me, I'm such a sinner, I'm so bad. Trust me, we know how bad you are. We see your Facebook posts. <laughs> I get some of your Snapchats. I know, believe me. But that's not the point. The point is not your sinfulness. The point is God's mercy and grace. So when you come to the realization, wow, <coughs> I'm sinful. I'm broken. I'm dependent. Then miraculously mercy comes in. And grace. And confidence. And boldness in the midst of the times that we have the least amount of confidence in ourselves, we have dependence upon God and grace and mercy reign. And guilt and mourning are cast out. So since God loves your awareness of depravity, and that's what humility is, that's what brokenness is, it's not guilt over your depravity, it's awareness of your depravity. I think we've made it pretty clear in the time that I've been here that we know that we're all sinners, that we believe in depravity, we know that we, the scripture says, none are righteous, no, not one, everyone has gone their own way, no one has sought him. <clears throat> we understand that. And so what God loves is your awareness of the fact that that is you. He loves that more than your religion. He loves that more than your activity in the church. He loves that more than your giving. But today, I want you to allow brokenness and humility 
about your depravity lead you to mercy, joy, and confidence. And guys, tell guilt to take a hike. Because that's not what humility is. Humility isn't guilt. Brokenness isn't guilt. Humility and brokenness are dependence. I'm a sinner. Man, I'm dependent on God who gives grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy and somehow transforms this depraved human being into someone who can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help when I need it. That's brokenness. That's humility. And when you feel guilt, stop it in its tracks. Say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but God. Yeah, I shouldn't have cut that old lady off on 41, <laughs> but God. Probably shouldn't have made that Facebook post so mean, but God. I'm not giving you excuse to be whatever you want to be when it comes to your sinfulness because if God truly has saved you, there is a sanctification process in place. But guilt has no place in the walk of a Christian. As we prepare to sing our final song together this morning and then you walk through the doors um, to go and live your Monday to Saturday life, I was thinking about what song to close with this morning and the scripture, we're going to put it back up on the screen from Micah. It says, O you, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth, from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient of days. And when we think about situations um, where we find that we, reali we realize our depravity and maybe we seem found in hopelessness, maybe our situation is, but we are never without hope because the word tells us from ancient of days, from old, we have one who is coming forth. We talk about the one who was and who is and who is to come. And that's why we are never without hope. So we want to sing from the scriptures this morning. We invite you to stand with us and sing really the only song that can capture the prophecy and the truth of he who was. The word was in the beginning. The word is now and the word is to come. Mm -hmm. 